from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the Trump. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 22nd. Today, the legacy of child separation, the barrier to accessing the internet in rural America, and how to start a pandemic pod. This week, we learned in a court filing that of the children who were separated from their parents at the border under the Trump administration, there are still 545 children whose parents can't be found. Teo Armas is a reporter for The Post. In 2018, the Trump administration rolled out this zero-tolerance immigration policy. Officials wanted to disincentivize families from Central America trying to come to the U.S. So they started to separate parents from their kids as soon as they crossed the border. The United States will not be a migrant camp, and it will not be a refugee-holding facility. won't be. You look at what's happening in Europe, you look at what's happening in other places, we can't allow that to happen to the United States, not on my watch. This, of course, made headlines, and many Americans on both sides of the political spectrum were outraged. Think of the stress of these children. They take a baby away from a nursing mother. They tell someone, we're going to give the baby a shower or a bath, and then they take the baby, uh, put them in a car seat and drive them away. This is not normal. In fact, it's barbaric. It has to stop. As I'm sure many people will remember, that essentially created a ton of chaos. I want my family together! I want my family Tons of protests. Really caused a huge uproar of, of anger at the government. For the record, Madam Secretary, are we still using cages for children? Uh, Sir, we don't use cages for children. In the border facilities that you've been to, uh, they were not made uh, to detain children. As the children are processed through, they are in subparts of those facilities. Uh, Madam, Madam, Secretary. Yes, I'm being as clear as I can, sir. Respectfully, I'm trying to answer your question. Yes or no, are we still putting children in cages? Uh, to my knowledge, CBP never purposely put a child in a cage if you mean uh, uh, a cage uh, like this. Purposely or whatever, uh, are we putting children in cages as of today? Children are processed at the border facility stations that you've been at. Some of the And areas... I've seen the cages. I just want you to admit that the cages exist. And, you know, eventually the, the Trump administration was uh, forced to reverse the policy. But many months before most of us had even heard about the child separations in 2018... In the latter half of 2017, the government was almost in in secret, with very little fanfare, running a very similar program, uh, you know, a a pilot program, if you will, uh, in in El Paso, uh, in which they separated about 1,500 children from their parents. Teo says that while it's generally been hard to track down the families that have been separated, this group of kids from 2017 has been particularly tough to reunite with their parents. Some, but not all, of the children whose parents still haven't been found were part of uh, this pilot separations program that occurred in, in El Paso during the second half of 2017. 
the fact that there is a situation now where there are about 550 kids whose parents can't be found, in some ways that is galling um, and, of course, very concerning, but in some ways also very unsurprising because I remember hearing about what it was like during these separations, how chaotic it often was and how many fears there were about the potential that something like this could happen. So what was the protocol in place to make sure that these kids were going to get reunited with their families? And what do we know about why that hasn't happened? You know, so so what ended up happening in 2018 uh, when uh, the ACLU and a group of lawyers sued uh, the government to try and reunite uh, one migrant with with her child is that lawsuit, you know, basically ended up becoming a class action lawsuit of sorts covering almost all parents who, you know, were separated at the border uh, from their children in in 2018, the government tasked uh, that group of lawyers with locating and, you know, identifying all the parents who had been separated. And that process, you know, as as you pointed out, was really chaotic, even when most of the parents were still in the U.S. You know, at, at that point, I think it was something like uh, five out of six parents were still somewhere in the U.S., whether they were in detention, whether they had been released from detention and, you know, just the process of, of you know, finding their children and and getting their children, you know, to wherever the parents were or getting the parents to wherever the children were was a huge, huge hassle. Now imagine that same process, but think about it happening with a, a much longer period of time in between, you know, the, the separation and, and the attempted reunification with many more parents already having been deported uh, in most cases back to Central America. I, I mean, at this point, it's exponentially harder to to try and locate those parents. And so the U.S. government had taken information that that lawyers say was outdated, that was inaccurate. I mean, in some cases, we're talking about a phone number that doesn't work and a misspelled name. And this team of lawyers using that information basically had to try and somehow track down a parent that might live in a tiny mountainside village uh, somewhere in the, you know, the highlands of, of Guatemala, um, and uh, that's that's really hard. I mean, it involves just these these day long processes where you know these these human rights defenders, these lawyers, might be going from from one town to another. I mean, basically just asking people, "I'm trying to find separated parents. Can you help?" So they've been traveling to be able to figure out like where some of these parents are. I imagine that with COVID going on, that must have gotten a lot more complicated if this process is requiring them to go to tiny towns to try to just like figure out who might be where. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I should clarify that this isn't necessarily, you know, ACLU lawyers are the ones doing this, this traveling for the most part. Um, I, you know, I believe it's people, human, you know, human rights lawyers who are based in, in the Northern Triangle of Central America who, you know, work for nonprofit organizations there and are part of this, this network called Justice in Motion. Um, but, you know, with, with the coronavirus outbreaks in those countries and, and some really uh, restrictive rules, you know, some, some curfews even about, um, you know, what people are allowed to do each day. Um, it, I mean, has basically all but stopped uh, these, these efforts to locate parents. And I think one, one really good example is, is uh, in Honduras, um, where, you know, for a while people were basically not really allowed to leave their homes. And now they're, they're allowed to leave their homes once, once a week, you know, depending on their specific government ID. 
So what happens is you have some human rights defenders who will use their one day a week to go take these rickety buses into tiny little towns and, and try and find families, but they have to be home in their own house by dark. They can't stay there overnight. This process is intensely difficult, intensely time-consuming. And 12, 14 hours probably might not cut it in terms of searching around and, and really trying to build trust, especially with these parents that have been traumatized and, and may also be so suspicious of of outsiders. So in the meantime, what is it like for these kids? And also, where are they? Like, who has custody of them? And what is our sense of what their lives are like right now? I mean, it, it really depends. All of these children are with legal guardians. So that might be a family member of some kind who is already living in the U.S., someone who's been vetted by the government. Many of these kids have gone through a system of migrant child shelters uh, before they were handed over to these sponsors, as they're known. What has the White House said about about the fact that you have all these kids now who might permanently have been separated from their families? So, you know, D- DHS basically called this, you know, sort of a false narrative and and pointed out that a lot, you know, if, if not all of the, the families that have uh, been located at this point actually don't want to be reunited with their children. They, they said that, that, that these families just don't want to be reunited with their children? That's, that's what the government claims. I, you know, I think in reality, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think there's something like 485 cases where these finders have, you know, been able to, to locate the parents and they can't, in most cases, actually be reunited with their kids in the U.S. You know, so you have the parents, again, mostly in Central America, the kids somewhere in the U.S. And a lot of parents say, look, my my child has spent over half their life in the U.S. They speak English better than they, you know, speak Spanish or, or an indigenous language now. In a lot of cases, parents, I mean, were also fleeing threats and gang violence and other sorts of things that led them to U.S. And, and they think that their children will be safer and, and have a better life, you know, in the U.S. So, I mean, it's, it's not that they don't want to be reunited, you know, but it's that they can't be reunited in the U.S. And they would rather their, their children stay in the U.S. than, you know, return to them uh, in, in Central America. What do you think it says that years later, there is still this hanging question about whether this child separation policy could have like permanently changed and altered and and like ruined the lives of these little kids. Well, I mean, you know, I think for a lot of people it's 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 an outrage, right? I mean, that's why we saw so many protests even, you know, at the international level, right? Just, you know, when this was happening in 2018, it was sort of the the story, right? I mean, I think the reaction to this particular bit of news, which, you know, I will point out is, is basically sort of a routine legal update, but, uh, you know, um, is, is sort of a reminder of the fact that there are all these these families that have still been separated. I think it just sort of continues to prove the the outrage that um, exists among a wide sector of, of the public in the U.S. just about this this particular policy about, you know, the way that I think Trump has handled immigration This still shows that there is very much a you know an elongated uh, and some might say permanent legacy uh, to this uh, this particular action. Teo Armas is a reporter for the Post. 
this is 2020 and there are hundreds of thousands of people in Virginia and millions in the country that still don't have access to the internet. We've talked a lot during the pandemic about the digital divide, the people who can and cannot afford access to good internet or technology. But that's not what this story is about. This story is about the millions of Americans living in rural places where internet companies just don't serve them. I'm Trevor Garner, live in Powhatan, Virginia, and I work for the state, and I'm 35. It just everything has a data limit or a data speed problem, or it's a lot of money just to get internet. There are people who have to go sit in parking lots, go meet a, a bus that has a mobile hotspot so that they can submit homework or send an email with a large attachment or join a teleconference because they can't get Wi-Fi at their house. Yeah, a lot of times you'll end up going to the uh, public library or gas station, hotel, you name whatever is convenient or the closest. Or in some areas, a hotspot doesn't help because even cell service is spotty in a lot of rural areas. We ended up having it maybe three months and gave it up because they started claiming it's it's roaming or it's doing whatever the device is doing. That's what's sucking your data. And they only give you 100 gigs. My name is Megan Flynn, and I am covering Virginia and Maryland and D.C. congressional delegations for the Metro staff. So I'm thinking about every time that I've moved to a new place, you know, move into a new apartment building or something, and I need internet, and I call up Comcast or whatever the company is, and I just ask them to install my internet, and then it's pretty quick and straightforward from there. How is that different for some of the people that you've been talking to in terms of when they have a need for high-speed internet and whether that's possible? Yeah, so they'll, you know, like anybody else, they'll call up Comcast, call up Verizon and ask, you know, what are some of your plans available? What can you do? And they'll say, oh, actually, we can't provide that service to you because the cables or the wires or uh, the fiber optics is really the new technology is not installed in their area. They typically live maybe like just a mile away from the main road where the cables or the wires are. And therefore, it's going to cost for them to extend the cables as much as $10,000 a household. It really just depends on how many homes are on that block. One of the uh, gentlemen that I spoke to for this story, he lives three quarters of a mile away from where the cables are, and he's not able to get service because of that. And so that's really the challenge for them is you'd have to get an entire neighborhood block to agree to pay thousands of dollars to make it worth it for a company to extend the service out to them. The issue for the companies is that they don't have a return on investment to install the Internet infrastructure. And it boils down to money for these companies. They, they'll invest in where the population is at. But Western Palatine is, I mean, my road has over... 50 houses on my road and it's three miles long. I mean, there's plenty of people there. You can make money, but they just won't invest in it. So they're going to have to ask these customers to make up the difference for them. And that's really difficult for a lot of people. And I can imagine that this is a problem that has probably become more apparent now that so many people are working from home. And if you don't have Internet at your home, that makes it really hard to work there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are literally having to go to parking lots 
One county official told me that he sees people sitting outside the library working on their laptops every day, sometimes for hours, because they can't telework at home. For schools, the school districts have done a really good job of trying to distribute hotspots to everybody. And that still, you know, is not a panacea because some kids, if they live in really remote areas, even the hotspot, it's too, you know, it goes in and out. Their connection isn't stable enough to sustain virtual school. I haven't taken my kids to do the school stuff with that. I was like, I'm not going to. It just is ridiculous. I'm like, y'all can send a hotspot or um, some books or worksheets here and we'll work with them. But I'm not going to go sit for eight hours at a school with my kids in the car that have to go to the bathroom. They need to eat. They, You know, you name it, stuff comes up. It's just not convenient. I'm not going to do it. And so, you know, they'd been finding ways to adapt for all these years. And as one lawmaker told me, COVID just kind of took away many of the ways that they had learned to adapt, such as they, you know, they had access to the Internet at school or at work. Now they're not in the office. They're not at school. So the problem has just really become exacerbated in, in very clear ways. But I think there are similar challenges for a lot of different forms of infrastructure when it comes to rural areas. Like, yes, it is more expensive to send the postal service out to someone who lives in a rural community, but we still do that because it's important to serve everybody. So is there a way that the government can step in and basically demand that these companies have to also provide services to people who don't live in urban areas? Yeah, there has been some proposals to make the internet a public utility. This would involve assisting municipalities in setting up their own broadband authorities. It's a question of of equity, of, you know, serious disparities um, and opportunity for people. So therefore, we, we do need to be able to guarantee that every single person is able to access this just like they do electricity. Internet's almost became like water for the way of life nowadays. So not providing it, You're losing out on a lot of stuff in life. And I wonder if part of this and the fact that this need for widespread high-speed internet in places that haven't been served up until this point, if that is reflective of like a larger difference in how we're thinking about internet as a resource and as like a fundamental part of our infrastructure, that it has become clear that having the ability to connect to the internet is like having the ability to connect to power or to to use a postal service or have a school bus pick up your kid, you know, that it's like one of those things that we're realizing is actually pretty central to the functioning of our society. That's why, thankfully, this is one of those like great unifier issues in Congress. This is very much a bipartisan issue. There's obviously differences in approaches and how to actually achieve universal access. But nobody is disagreeing that internet in this day and age isn't as important as having electricity and roads and these basic infrastructure that that we rely on every day. So that's the good news. Of course, then just figuring out how to make this happen. The funding, there was like an $80 billion proposal in Congress. It didn't, it passed House, but Republicans in the Senate have not really supported it so far. So there's just different approaches that have made it difficult to just agree on one single proposal and run with it. Megan Flynn is a reporter for The Post. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. And now, one more thing about how to pod up for winter. At this point in the pandemic, I think everyone has come to the realization that the end is not coming anytime soon. So a lot of adapting has had to happen. And for a lot of people, that means changing the way they socialize and maintain social connections. And so what a lot of people have been trying is forming a pandemic pod or bubble. My name is Allison Chu, and I'm a reporter covering wellness for The Post. So at its most basic definition, a pod is essentially a group of people who follow really strict coronavirus safety protocols when they're not hanging out with their pod. So anytime they're in public or interacting with other people. And so by doing that, ideally, pod members can come back together and socialize in a way where they're not increasing their risk of contracting or spreading the virus. That often means meeting up outside where airflow and ventilation aren't as much of a concern. But with winter approaching and the weather turning colder in a lot of places, gathering outside is going to be a lot harder for people to accomplish in a way that's comfortable and convenient for them. So potting up has kind of emerged as a way that you can maybe move those interactions indoors safely. Potting up is a really complicated process. And so experts have a lot of tips for how you can do it safely. And one of the first things you should do when thinking about potting up is to thoroughly assess your pod mates. You really have to think about it as if you're dating someone and you want to be able to really trust them because your safety is in their hands, essentially. And so you want to be able to talk to them openly about any health concerns or their daily behaviors and really have a strong connection to them. And you want to make sure that your pod mates are people who have the same level of risk as you do. The easiest thing to do when assessing that is thinking about how many daily exposures to other people you might have and think about your potential pod mates and whether they have this, a similar amount of exposure as you do. On top of all that, you should also really enjoy hanging out with them. Another tip for a successful pod is to keep it small. There's no formal number for how many people your pod should have, but ideally you should be keeping it between five to 10 people. And that's what experts are saying is a manageable number that you can really keep track of what everyone in your pod is doing. The next step is agreeing on clear rules for members to follow, which is a really critical part of forming a pod because you have to remember that safety is the most important thing here. So that means all agreeing to follow recommendations from the CDC and making sure that you have a plan in place in case something goes wrong. And the last thing to remember is that the pandemic is changing so quickly and our understanding of the viruses as well. So you really need to be able to be flexible within your pod and all the members have to be willing to adapt and change their ideas of what a pod is, depending on what the situation calls for. And if potting up isn't a feasible option for you, there are still a lot of ways you can get the social interaction that you need during a, a pandemic winter. 
And that involves being able to hang out outside if that's still an option for you, or you can move things indoors and continue to practice public health recommendations like masking, social distancing, and making sure you're in a well-ventilated space. Allison Chu writes about wellness for The Post. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Shout out to the listeners who have recently left reviews of Post Reports on their podcast app. That includes listener Omaha Blues, who talked about our recent episode on the life of George Floyd. They wrote, I found this story so powerful about the human struggle for meaning, purpose, and dignity. Reviews like that are really important to us, and it helps other people find our show and find the stories that matter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.